Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bissell. And I am Ethan Knight. And we're back with number five on the AFI Top 100. And that's 1952's Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain. Have you seen this one before? I have not. I hadn't either, though I will say I've heard a lot about it. There are a lot of people whom I respect that think very highly of this film. Interesting. I mean, I, I think we're we're all exposed a little bit to the music, uh, to some of the music, um, but that's really all I had recognized. Yeah, super iconic titular scene. Of course. Though, not really a good reason why it's the title of the movie. No, I don't. Well, Matt, I I don't know if you knew this, but you know that this film is made up of uh, previously written music for the majority of it. Yes, just like Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia or Across the Universe or any number of other uh, slapped together musicals uh, using pre-existing music. Um, and, And I think despite the fact that this is such an iconic film, I think it kind of shows that the music doesn't really have anything to do with much of the plot i think that's always going to be the case when you have to find a way to stitch all the stuff together Mm -hmm. at a certain point it just kind of feels like they give up which we'll get to i mean we're definitely jumping way ahead because before we dig into any of this we need a plot synopsis yes of course we do uh so let's start singing in the rain is the story of don lockwood and kathy selden whose budding romance begins among the transition from silent film to talkies the film opens with the premiere of lockwood's most recent successful film the royal rascal in which he co-stars with alina lamont lamont and lockwood are frequently cast together and to drum up publicity for them the studio feeds tabloids stories that the two are romantically involved Lockwood denies the rumors in person, but Lamont is convinced that the two are actually in love. Throughout the premiere, Lockwood stops Lamont from speaking, as her actual voice is terrible to listen to. After the premiere, Lockwood attempts to escape his fans with his less famous best friend, Cosmo Brown, but Cosmo's car breaks down and Lockwood escapes by jumping into a random car. The driver is Kathy Selden, an aspiring theater actress who looks down her nose at film stars. She drops Lockwood at his swanky Hollywood after party, where the stars are shown the new technology that allows sound in movies. They all laugh it off as a passing fad, uh, and the floor show begins afterward, with Kathy jumping out of a cake and dancing with the other women to Lockwood's surprise. After the performance, he mocks her playfully as she attempts to throw a cake in his face, but hits Lamont instead. Lockwood falls in love and spends the next few weeks searching for Kathy as Lamont made sure that Kathy was fired. He eventually finds her working for Monumental Pictures, his company, as a chorus girl. They profess their love to each other. Since rival Warner Brothers' Talkie, the jazz singer, becomes a massive hit, Monumental scrambles to keep up. Studio exec R.F. Simpson decides to convert the next Lockwood and Lamont film, The Dueling Cavalier, into a Talkie. However, they have enormous trouble, partly due to Lamont's terrible voice, and the preview of the film goes poorly when the sound comes out of sync with the action. 
Later that night, Lockwood, Kathy, and Cosmo come up with an idea to convert the Dueling Cavalier into The Singing Cavalier, a musical made up of new material and previously filmed material. Cosmo suggests they dub Kathy's voice over Lena Lamont's but plan not to tell Lena. However, Lamont discovers the truth and threatens to sue the studio over breach of contract unless they pretend Kathy's voice is hers. The film premieres to great success, and Lena insists that Kathy will be her voice in all of her films exclusively from now on. She makes a speech to the crowd who are surprised at her real voice. They call for her to sing, and the men concoct a plan. While Lena lip-syncs, Kathy sings for real behind a curtain. The men pull it back, exposing and humiliating Lena, and when Kathy flees the theater, Lockwood has the audience stop her. He identifies her as the real star of the film, and the film ends with the lovers kissing in front of a billboard for their new film, Singing in the Rain. Which is not the film you actually see, right? You see no. a, a preamble to it, and the Singing in the Rain part is after, I guess, he kisses her goodnight, he's feeling really good, and dances around the city block. And that's the famous scene. Yes, I mean, it's what's kind of surprising is that that scene is is pretty inconsequential. I didn't even make it into the plot synopsis because I was like, I, what? I mean, what does he do? He takes her home and then he dances around. I guess it's interesting from a visual perspective. We can talk about this when we get there, but I think with a movie like this, it's maybe best to actually just go in order of the plot. Yeah. So let's start at the beginning with the royal rascal which is actually comprised of footage of Gene Kelly's Three Musketeers. Oh, is that true? Yeah, and they just had the actress who plays Lena spliced in in different places. And apparently you can see where the hairstyles and dresses change between the two women. So maybe it's sort of a budget solution to this this film issue. But then you have... As they're walking into the premiere for that successful movie, you have Gene Kelly do this like really close to camera reminiscence of them growing up basically in vaudeville. Right. And something about that was just really weird to me. I don't know if it was just how close we got to his face. We could see exactly how much makeup he's wearing. Which oh, is and he was wearing a lot. A grand ton. And then just how disconnected it felt. We're like, the movie's just starting. Let's zoom in and completely derail the plot to talk about this person's backstory. It just felt really awkward to me. Yes. And of course, his backstory is that is everything that he says is not true. He says he's raised in the you know in the theater in the best schools and the finest this and that. And we see these little vignettes of him as a child with Cosmo, and he was not. Uh, you know, this sort of um, opulent young man, he he sort of scrapped his way up, right? Uh, but you're right, that doesn't really have much else to do. I mean, I guess it does have to do with the plot because we sort of get that in the duel or the singing cavalier sort of i mean there's there are weird layers here to this movie sorry but we'll keep going all the way through yeah i mean i think you're right that it does play into the singing cavalier in that it's a return to form which is vaudeville which apparently is going to be suited best in a talkie as opposed to a silent film which i think u.s film history plays that out as well yeah so that seems true But it just felt really weird to derail it so early. And the reason I bring this up is because that's where it really started to dawn on me like, I might not like the plot of this movie. Uh. 
And so we move past that, and pretty much the next thing is actually my pivot is when he meets Kathy, as you mentioned in your plot synopsis. So he jumps mm-hmm. in the car, and she's surprised, thinks he's a gangster, stops at a cop. Want to point this out? The cop's like, no, that's Don Lockwood. You don't need any help, do you? And she's <laughs> like, I guess not. And I was like, wow, that cop is just going to go ahead and give the thumbs up to potential sexual predation. And then what's the next thing that Don Lockwood does but turns to her and tries to tries hit to, on yeah, her? He- Right. (laughs) And it's that horrible trope, which this might have had some help in popularizing, of he is into her, she's not into him, and that's what actually makes him fully interested above all others, is the unattainable conquest. Right. So the scene that I'm picking for this is actually, it's two things. The audio is going to be, them talking about how she's the stage actress and how film actors have no substance and they're just mm. shadows. It's a very common thing at this at this schism point in, in history between stage and screen. Mm-hmm. And then after, when they're talking about the silent film and how they're all playing it off, I want to talk about both those things. So let's go ahead and listen to this audio. Okay. I'd very much like to know whose hospitality I'm enjoying. Seldom. Kathy Seldon. Enchanted, Miss Seldon. I'm sorry I frightened you. I was getting a little too much love from my adoring fans. Oh, that's what you were running away from. They did that to you? That's terrible. Yes, yes it is, isn't it? It is terrible. Well, we movie stars get the glory. I guess we have to take the little heartaches that go with it. People think we lead lives of glamour and romance, but we're really lonely. Terribly lonely. Oh, Mr. Lockwood, I really can't tell you how sorry I am about taking you for a criminal before, but it was understandable under the circumstances. I knew I'd seen you. Which of my pictures have you seen? I don't remember. I saw one once. You saw one once? Yes, I think you were dueling, and there was a girl, Lena Lamont. No, I don't go to the movies much. If you've seen one, you've seen them all. Oh, thank you. Oh, no offense. Movies are entertaining enough for the masses, but the personalities on the screen just don't impress me. I mean, they don't talk, they don't act, they just make a lot of dumb show. Well, you know. Like that. You mean, like what I do? Well, yes. Here we are, sunset in Camden. So the reason I chose this is I think this is why this film is so important to people, why it's made its way up to number five on the list, Mm -hmm. is because it represents this moment in American history, in terms of media history, that changed everything, right? We go from stage to screen, and also they're talking about how the silent films changed then to talkies. And that's such a monumental shift in the industry at that point that I think film buffs or film nerds, right, are really into that. And I think that's why you get something like the AFI list putting it so highly. Yeah, the the historical aspect of this film is definitely a draw. And the weirdly metatextual... Uh, elements that that I think are are really sort of like right even in this scene they're talking about being shadow you know she's scoffing at that he's a shadow on the screen when they are nothing but shadows on the screen right uh and 
you know, there's there's all this sort of weirdly uh, almost fourth wall breaking in places, uh, you know, this sort of weirdly casual, weirdly meta approach. And I think that I think that's really part of the success of this film. At least that's my speculation. That's mine as well, and it's actually where I was starting to turn back into the film if it was yeah. all going to be the scenes about trying to convert the silent film to the talkie, right? Having Lena talk into the microphone, have her sound better than she does, and all the things they had to do. That scene I found to be genuinely funny, right? and I enjoyed it at that point. I also I liked uh, Cosmo's Make Him Laugh song because it just oh, showed a you? lot of his skill as a performer, a yeah, a dancer and a performer. Yes, and that actor spent uh, several days in the hospital after doing that, uh, after filming all of that, because of his propensity for smoking upwards of four packs of cigarettes a day. Yeah, I heard that. There's a lot of really fun facts that we're probably going to focus on in this movie, just because I didn't care too much about the actual action of the film. Yeah. But moving forward, he has a really funny line, too. I actually thought Cosmo was a better character than Don Lockwood in the entire film. Like, I'd much rather deal with Cosmo. Mm-hmm. when they're they think all is lost and it's like ah oh, well i guess now it's time to suffer and write that symphony and he's like no i'm putting you head of the music department he goes well i guess it's time to make that symphony and not suffer or something like that it's just like it's so funny as a creative because you think oh well i gotta go through these hardships to make a masterpiece oh but actually i have to make money to make a masterpiece so it kind of just outlined that duplicitous nature really well of uh, the like, oh, I'll, I can only do it if, if this condition is met, and that condition is met. I'm like, well, actually, it was the other condition I meant to say. <laughs> so that was really good. It was about this point in the film I realized that Kathy is actually Carrie Fisher's mom. Yes, yes, she is, famously. I remember that whole thing about their deaths being very close together, like within a day or something like that. Mm-hmm. Very sad, but, you know, after I saw that i was like oh they do look a lot alike they look a lot alike and sound a lot alike and uh you know it it makes a lot more sense when you think about the fact i mean carrie fisher is is uh hollywood royalty because her mother was debbie reynolds i mean Mm -hmm. debbie if this had been the only movie debbie reynolds had been in she would still have been uh hollywood royalty right but she was in a ton of other things as and well. this is like one of her first, right? She was so young. She was like 19 yes. and they threw her in and everyone thought it was going to work and it did. So it's very good for her, obviously, in her career, which, mm-hmm. again, metatextually, just like Kathy in the film, this is the start of her career. Mm-hmm. So that also plays as well. That that's that metatextual stuff is, is all over the place. Uh, and I think that's a lot of fun. And I think, again, I think that that really has... Uh, a lot to do with why this film is so successful because as you pointed out I I guess I'll put it this way the most of the music numbers I was pretty bored and just waiting for them to end Um, we've seen a lot of musicals on this list that are more spectacular uh, in skill of dancers uh, or that are more spectacular in terms of like the actual spectacle and scope of of the dancing um than this uh, we've certainly seen musicals where the music is better uh than a lot of the music in this um and and so i really think that there there is a, a sort of like large scale scope going on here that that's obvious right that it was, looks like it was not a cheap film to uh create but i think it's that extra metatextual stuff that really 
cements it and 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 some of the comedy and and some of the historical stuff uh but i but i think in general the music the musical numbers are are kind of boring yeah i think it's this film that convinced me that i actually hate tap dancing oh i like tap dancing but i don't really care for it in this film <laughs> i just don't think i want to see it and it's not like they're actually they are tap dancing but they're not wearing tap shoes then right. they're dubbing the shoes over mm-hmm. with tapping noises so sometimes you could tell when it's desynchronized mm-hmm. which is another metatextual thing right because they're know, talking about desynchronization right? in the film but I think we should talk a little bit about that scene where they decide that they're in love. And mm-hmm. I say decide that they're in love because it seems like the plot's like, you're in love now. And it's like, they had this moment, they were, didn't see each other for three weeks. He finds her and they're like, well, I guess we're in love now. And it just kind of moves forward at a weird lurching pace, their relationship. Like, it's kind of just like, oh, they're newly together. And suddenly they're very desperately in love. And it's mm-hmm. just like... Very weird, and they have that whole like behind the stage or empty stage scene where they do the love thing at the ladder, and I was just so bored at that point. That that was actually one of the few scenes that I thought was was kind of interesting to watch in terms of the music. Oh, even though plot wise it didn't really. I mean, you're right. It's they they needed to be in love because this, the plot calls for it, and that's and it just kind of happens, and we keep going, and you don't question it, and. Well, some of us question it. Well, <laughs> I think yeah. The thing that this like upsets me the most in a movie is when the plot and the character development are not in tune with one another. And where one is here. pushing the other, right? If the yeah. character is just so overburdened, burdening the plot, doesn't let the plot actually kind of motivate things at all. It's just too character focused. Or in this case, where the plot overrides any kind of characterization and so the characters are like well the plot says we're in love now so i guess we're in love mm-hmm. and this movie seems to do maybe a little bit of both of that because I, I you know watching it uh this morning i realized that the the plot the actual plot of the film which is to say they have this movie they don't know what to do with because it's now obsolete and the, and the talk, you know, that we they have to shift over to talkies, but the star has an awful voice. None of that happens until an hour in. One right. hour in, right. that begins. Uh, there's 40 minutes left of the film that that resolves that. The rest of it is just set up. Well, it's not even. It doesn't even resolve that. That final 40 minutes. No, they don't ever face any dilemma about how to do it. It's just done, and you're supposedly watching scenes from that film in which that is done. Mm-hmm. which is so weird because the plot elements they're talking about in the film that they're converting in order to keep the Cavalier bits, they're going to have him like Connecticut Yankee, right? He gets knocked unconscious mm-hmm. and sent back in time in his mind. And so he's doing the song and dance stuff, modern dance stuff in whatever, like um, I guess it's Renaissance esque times, right? Yeah. That would have been really fun. I would have loved to either watch just that movie, right? Set it up for 30 minutes and then just play that movie or have them try to deal with these situations where they're converting scenes or dealing with the leanest stuff. Like that's the most interesting part of the film. And it's treated like it's getting in the way of these big numbers we have planned. I think that the biggest, biggest instance of that is like right before the film ends, there's a 13 minute number that is set up by, the three guys, Simpson, yes. Cosmo, and Lockwood, watch a scene, and then Lockwood gets up and says, I have this idea for the next number, 
and they basically do like nighttime talk show. Let's roll the clip. He does the whole thing for 13 full minutes. There's this crazy, weird story going on in it the whole time, which as an aside, the female lead for that scene, her name's like Sid Cerise or something. Mm -hmm. She had $6 million like insurance contract on her legs. (gasps) Wow. And and this is a little more blue here, but they actually had to stop and refilm a lot of stuff because apparently her pubic hair was visible through the outfit. Oh, no. And they had to say, like, oh, that can't happen. And oh, they had no. to redo a lot of it. But <laughs> in any case, that's I counted it 13 minutes long, that weird extended scene. And then they come back from their clip and R.F. Simpson's like, well, I don't I'll have to see it on film. So I can't visualize it as like a joke to say, like. You went into such depth. And obviously, like, Lockwood would have to be there. What is he doing? Like, a running play-by-play and, like, acting out as tapping in that room for 13 full minutes. And they're like, well, let's go to the premiere, I guess. So it was just the most bizarre. That's what I was talking about earlier at the episode where it just feels like they just get tired and just say, like, I don't know, just shove the last ones in here at the end. Yeah, and and I mean, that that dance number is, is spectacular in many ways, but it doesn't seem to fit the plot that they've concocted for the Cavalier thing it doesn't fit i mean it literally just feels like it's its own little thing for 13 minutes uh and then it's and then it's over and there's no i guess that's in the movie that they see at the it it just was bizarre and this film is full of this stuff like these weird things that don't really matter or sometimes don't make sense right like you just noted how on like two or three different levels that scene doesn't fit either into the film we're watching the film we were supposed to be watching initially or the film that they're remaking because the initial film was going to be silent or wasn't going to work right it doesn't fit on any of those levels no and all all it becomes i mean it's almost as though they were like we want to have a crazy mobster dance scene with all this like impressionist imagery in it i mean it's even the dance number jumps all over the place and then it all it is is a payoff for a joke when he's like i can't visualize it because of course we've just seen it right like mm-hmm. it, which is it's cool but i but i think maybe the novelty of that has really worn off like like that's not for us as a modern audience in not 1952 we're kind of like all right let's come on get, let's get this over with i was fed up by that point really yeah I, I, and in 1952, I can see how that's like this crazy um, non sequitur, you know, that, that feels groundbreaking and all of that. But today it feels a little tedious, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and then I think the final thing to talk about is the actual ending. Lena comes up with this plan and has read her contract, which I'm not convinced that Lena knows how to read or write because apparently she's the one that leaks all the information to the press mm-hmm. and she wrote the stories. It's like, no, Lena has been played as this really dumb character this entire time. Mm-hmm. You can't just decide she's this mastermind that's going to be niggling about her contract and make sure that she writes this grandiose story about herself. But they do the reveal. But to Kathy, Don gives nothing up. And she's like, I, I hate you. I never want to see you again. But I will do this. And it's like, dude. You have to tell this woman the plan. Right. You can't not tell. And and he doesn't tell her the plan because he's like, <laughs> she'll love me when it's done. Uh, and of course she does because it's a musical. And But that's the only reason why. And I also thought during that moment when he goes, oh, this is the actual one who did it. That could have been like a spur of the moment decision based on regret 
versus her reaction, right? Right. Like, she didn't know that he had been planning this the whole time that they've concocted that this would work and that would be fine. Like, at least wink at her. Do something. Like, right, right. Yeah. It's, he's it's, such a shitty guy to her. Cool. Yeah. And, well, and I... And and I guess the last little bit that I'll say about this, because I it just I remembered it now. I do wonder. I mean, so I guess think about it like this: the twenties. This is set in the twenties, right? And made in the fifties. So that's about a thirty-year difference, right? Uh, so I wonder. I mean, if we so if we made this movie today, thirty years ago would have been what the eighties. The nineties. So, oh my god! It is the nineties. Fuck! I'm getting old. So, but, but I mean, think about it. So I wonder if there is like, maybe there, maybe there's this nostalgia factor here for, you know, the, the, this, the audiences of the time, right? That like, this is the golden age. This is the transition where everything changed. I mean, we can think about the night. I mean, think about how much nostalgia people have for the nineties right now. Oh, it's everything. Like every style, it's all, every time you look at something, you think, oh, wow, that's just from the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think that maybe that's also sort of part of the the initial love for this film is that it is a perfect storm of these factors that like on their own or out of context maybe aren't that great but when you throw them together really really work and it obviously has become influential uh but maybe now you know with fresh eyes as as a you know an audience that is many many years away from that now like 60 years away from that now we we don't have that same sort of feeling well i think it's about time for us to turn to our three questions but before that let's talk about anchor you can't make me so our first question is what do we owe this film well uh you know there there's a lot to be said about the musical aspects right which is to say that they take a catalog of music and you know stitch together a story around music they already own and i don't know that this is the first time that this happens but it's certainly one of the most notable times um you've also got those giant set pieces you know that that you need a lot of money to do and in a lot of ways it is filmed like a stage production uh, just on film uh and so i think you have to we have to sort of cop to that you know that oh god but that's also stuff we've seen prior to this both historically and on the list right we have a lot of the fred astaire stuff and what yankee doodle dandy is probably the one that comes up the most yeah you're right big final scene like this one except for this one has like some actual plot tacked on at the end to end it it just kind of ended with like Mm mm-hmm 12 seconds of dialogue after that. Yep. Well, and, and I mean, I'll put it this way. Yankee Doodle Dandy, there were several moments watching that movie where I was like, wow, look at that dancing. In this one, I was like, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Oh, I was just so fed up with it. But I mean, this is clearly part of the bedrock of the musical mm-hmm. that we know. Yeah, absolutely. I also think the the main scene, right, the title scene, Singing in the Rain, is something everyone knows it is the image of this film and we were talking about this earlier in the episode about why is that has really nothing to do with it even though they try to like tack on at the very beginning of the film you see cosmo Mm -hmm. kathy and don doing the singing thing you're like what that what has nothing to do with any part of this film and why we already see kathy when that's supposed to be like a reveal that she's going to be the new leading lady it's such a weird thing but the 
the idea of that scene, I think it's so important because it's very technically difficult. I mean, the famous story about how Gene Kelly was very sick at the time, maybe had 100 degree temperature, goes out there and does it and ad libs most of it. And it's like one take, evidently. I don't know. I'm sure how I can believe that, but I'll let's take it for granted that it is right. On top of that, they have like two blocks of that city street set out there. Mm, it's it's all covered set. with tarps, so that it appears dark. And then they're they're using sprinklers to make it rain. So it's it's a very technically amazing thing, very costly thing. And on top of that, you have the opposite in that he's ad libbing all of this stuff while very sick. So. It makes for a great Hollywood story. Yes. And I think people really enjoy that aspect of it. But viewing it without any of that, right? Strip away all of the stuff behind it, which I'm not sure you can do in good faith, but let's do it for the thought experiment. Strip that all away. It's not very interesting. It's not very incredible. It's not very exceptional. Yeah, I mean, I I think you're right. I think when we think about it technically, it's doing something that was very hard to produce on a on film but when you get past that technical aspect you're right it doesn't really have anything to do with the plot the song isn't that great the dancing is pretty good but you know it's not i'm not getting wowed here in the same way that i think i have been in other films i think yeah it's very strange it's very strange well that leads us pretty nicely into our second question which is does this film hold up I think the answer in a lot of ways for me personally is is not not really. I think this is very dated. I think it in in just in just about every way. I mean and and it's fun to watch something that's a classic and to think about it as a classic and and all of that. I'm flabbergasted at how high this is on the list. I guess that's what I have to say about that. Right. I also am going to answer this in the negative and say I really don't think this holds up. I think the musical stylings, of course, are dated. Musicals have changed a lot in the last several decades, more recently, right? So that's very different than if you were someone who's into musicals now, which is understandable. But on top of that, I think the plot is so stitched together. I mean, I saw Mamma Mia pretty recently, both live and then the film version, mm-hmm. and thought that was pretty fun. And there are some moments where you're like, well, why are they doing this song? I was like, oh, well, of course, they have to get they the plot to. along these lines mm-hmm. to play everyone's favorite ABBA song. So it's like, cool, I get that. In this, I found it far more disconnected. And I really feel like it gets worse over time in the film. And it's not like it's a long film. It's an hour and 42. That's a short film, especially for short. this list, especially this yes. high on this list. Yes. And for it to be losing me so much, like, I was very disappointed by that. So... Definitely don't think it holds up, which will then put it to our third question. Do we care about this film? Um, you know, I think we have to just for for some of the the technical and and sort of like exper- meta experimental things that are going on here. But outside of that, I don't know that I'm going to be thinking about this film that much. In fairness, though, a lot of the musicals today that are a lot of flash and not a whole lot of substance are the same way. And I think we'll see in 60 years 
will Mamma Mia continue to be? I mean, if we live in a hellscape, if our reality continues to go the way that it's going, of course, Mamma Mia will be the only thing anybody listens to. Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? I, yeah, I don't, I don't think I care that much. You know, it'd be interesting with Lin Manuel Miranda's. I don't know what the title is. I saw a preview for it. The filmed musical that he's doing is releasing. I think in the summer, unless that's changed because of COVID. But it'd be interesting to see how different that is, how similar it is, because it feels more like a West Side Story kind of thing. But I wonder if it is something that will hold up more. It would, it would be a nice comparison piece, something like this. But mm-hmm. I really don't care about this movie on a personal level. And I think as a public level, there are people who have fondness for this. But I also don't fully understand that fondness. Like NPR talking about you know, staying at home and feeling stressed and depressed and everything about the current state of the world. Mm-hmm. They said, oh, well, you know, you find your happy place. Mine is going back and watching Singing in the Rain. And I thought, really? <laughs> yeah. You find that as your, your bit of escape, this horribly disconnected film. But maybe it's just, it's a lights and colors kind of thing. I think, you know, and I, I, I think that maybe it is the genre of the musical that does that because I was trying to think like what other musicals would, would I, and you know, and I famously do not much care for musicals except for only if, you know, there are a few that I have some positive feelings about, but in general, I don't really care to see them. Um, and I keep thinking, I'm like, well, what would be my favorite musical? And I keep thinking like, you know, I watch white Christmas a lot and white Christmas in a lot of ways. We've done it for this podcast is not a great musical, not a great film, but there's a lot of nostalgia. There's a lot of like, it's something that makes me think of Christmas time. The couple of songs on there that are Christmas, there's lots of good feelings associated with it. Uh, and I wonder if, if Singing in the Rain is what is is one of those films that for a lot of people is has good memories associated with it. The it, You know, it's about, it's a movie about movies, which is always sort of feel goody. Well, particularly to the people who are voting on this AFI list, right? It's that like mm. masturbatory instinct, I think, where they're yeah. just patting themselves on the back for this. And I could really see why it appears so high. But simultaneously, I think it really shouldn't. And I'm here to put the dagger in nostalgia's heart, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Because I think there are better musicals on this list that, that you know, could could be up here instead of this one. And it's right. such a contrast. The la- thing about the last two films we just watched for this, we watched Gone with the Wind and uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Arabia, right? These these sweeping giant epics that are that at their core are character studies about these unrelenting, almost monomaniacal character. Right? This is another. These are two characters in like uh, that that fit into like this American film history that is about these giant romantic figures, and then we get this film that is. A, it is a movie about it's a stitch together movie about a stitch together movie about a stitch together movie which is starring this guy who's like 10 seconds away from a me too moment yes it, it it's just yeah it's weird it's a weird placement on this list and i think we are even though we shy away from talking about the the placement in general when when we're this high it, it's worth considering it's always worth considering when you're this high. And we'll move on That's from that true. statement and say, <laughs> considering placement on the list, next time on the AFI Top 100, we are going to deal with 1980s Raging Bull. Raging Bull. Before that, however, there will be 
of course, Patreon bonus episode. And on top of that, the penultimate chapter of the rundown. Oh, wow. Been waiting a long time to say that penultimate. So I've gotten to yeah. do it. And that's all. So until next time, I've been Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. And you can't spoil him. I can't spoil him. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers.